And turn in your Bibles to Genesis 15 as we continue working through uh, Genesis, uh, this, uh, this beginning of Scripture, this beginning of the world and of redemptive history. Uh, as we come to Genesis 15, we're continuing in the story of Abram. Later, his name changed to Abraham, uh, the same person. In Genesis 12, remember that, uh, that God came to Abram, having called him out of his homeland, away from Ur, and to the, uh, the promised land. God, in Genesis 12, promises to make a covenant with Abram. Uh, this is, you know, covenant is not a word we use as much anymore today. Uh, and the, the import of this idea of covenant is ultimately relationship. What God promises to Abram is to enter into a relationship with him in which he will be Abram's God, and Abram and his offspring will be God's people, and that God will meet all of the needs and ultimately the greatest need of Abram and his offspring, and that is the need for salvation. So God makes these promises. The promises are made to Abram in the context of covenant, of relationship, having promised in Genesis 12 to make that covenant here in Genesis 15 this morning, God does so. Uh, it was uh, more than, than most weeks, a challenging week in terms of trying to figure out what I was going to not say. Uh, there are so many things here. We're, we're going to take our cue this morning in part from Paul, uh, who quotes repeatedly verse 6 here to describe our salvation coming as a result of faith and not works. And so we're going to consider that this morning uh, for certain. But I also, before we begin, I want to point out to you, before we read, I want you to see the beauty, the, the kindness, the patience, the gentleness of God with Abram here. As he comes to Abram and speaks to Abram, God's patience with Abram. And even God's patience demonstrated with respect to the Amorites, which we're, we'll read about before the end of the passage here. I want you to see the simplicity of what's unfolding here as God comes and says to Abram, Fear not, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And he allows Abram then to say to him, What will you give me? And he, he says to Abram, I, You're going to have a child of your own. Here, come, come outside the tent. Look up. Are you able to count the stars? My promise will be fulfilled in you so faithfully, so perfectly, that your offspring will outnumber the stars. And even then, Abram says, ah, but how am I going to know that these things will, will come to pass? God says, gather these animals together. I'm going to cut this covenant with you now. God is so patient and gentle with Abram. And that's how he is towards us. It's tempting, particularly as a pastor and a seminary graduate, to, to spend this morning in a lecture on systematic theology and justification. And these are important truths. They are foundational truths, and we're not going to get away this morning without making reference to them. But I don't want us to miss how it is that God reveals Himself to Abram and therefore to us. Now, it's not just that this is the same God. Abram's God is our God. 
It's not just that God has made the same kind of promises to us that He made to Abram. It is that God is fulfilling the promises He made to Abram to us because we are the offspring of Abram by faith. These are our promises, and this is our God. Let me pray for us. Father, as we come to Your Word this morning, I pray that You would open our eyes and our ears Uh, that where our fallen condition uh, has blunted our ability to understand, Your Spirit would supernaturally overcome this, that the life that is ours in Christ by that Spirit, Father, would be uh, inflamed this morning as we are reminded of Your goodness towards us and Your love for us. Father, we pray that these truths would sink deep into our hearts and that we would carry them with us as we go back out into the world today. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Hear the reading of God's Word, Genesis 15, beginning in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and the member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, They shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Well, several things this morning, uh, out of the the many, many things that could be said, I found myself thinking, this is uh, is like a six-week summer series. We're just going to take Genesis 15 and spend six weeks in Genesis 15, and I'll still have to leave some things out if we did that. But this morning, salvation is by faith alone. 
Salvation is by faith alone. God is exceedingly patient with His people. God is exceedingly patient with His people. And God's promises never fail. God's promises never fail. Salvation is by faith alone. The key verse in this passage, if we were to take our cue from the New Testament, is verse 6. Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. There are a couple of things that we see here and later on in the text this morning. First of all, that salvation is by faith and not by works. This is uh, Paul quotes this verse three times in Romans 4 alone. Uh, and, and in doing so, each one is like a hammer blow in support of his argument, which he repeats over and over again, that you cannot be saved by keeping the law. Abram believed the Lord God, and it was counted. That is, his faith was counted as righteousness. Abram was not counted righteous because of his great acts. He's just come from conquering kings and kingdoms. God does not come to him and say, having done this, I count you righteous. He comes to, to Abram in what turns out to be a moment of weakness following this great victory over the kings and kingdoms. Paul in Romans 4 and Galatians 3 quotes this verse and insists that you cannot earn a righteous status before God by keeping the law. It's only by believing God's promises. Now, if you've been in church all your life, especially if you've been in a Presbyterian church all your life, all of that just rolls right off of you. You hear it. You've heard it a million times before. I want to pause for a second and remind you why it matters that you have righteousness that you are counted as righteous by faith in Christ. We are all of us from conception, sinners, and under God's judgment. And even if you will not accept that biblical doctrine, you must, from your own experience, recognize that before you had any idea what was at stake, you are already guilty of, of actual sin. What will we do before a God that demands absolute righteousness in order to escape His just judgments? There's nothing that we can do. We are without hope. Paul says this was true of the Gentiles before the gospel came to them. He says in Ephesians 2, Remember, you were without God and without hope in the world. We are hopeless before a God who, with absolute justice and infinite power, comes to judge sin. We are desperately in need of righteousness, and we cannot get it by keeping the law. It's too late. We've already broken the law. We are already unrighteous. In our fallen state, we are inclined, no matter how well we know this truth, that we cannot earn righteousness. We are still inclined to think in terms of doing things, of, of keeping the law, of being a good person, and if we've not been a good person, being a better person, and doing our best to come to a point where we are satisfied that we're worthy of being saved. And Christ tells us, and it's, it's a mercy that He tells us, you cannot save yourself. He says in the Gospels, you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And the ship sailed, folks. 
We are not righteous and we cannot make ourselves righteous. And thanks be to God. We see here in this text this morning, Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. This is one of those examples where the original language is so helpful. Uh, the, The verb in Hebrew here that's translated believed is the word from which we get amen. Uh, in fact, the verb is, is amin, amen. Whether or not he said it aloud or in his heart, Abram hears God. And it's interesting. I don't know if you picked up on it. Look at the text again. It, both Abram's speech and God's speech have a pause in the middle. Did you see that? Look at God's speech beginning in verse 5. God brings him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. It's as though God gives Abram a moment to consider the numbering of the stars. It's easy to imagine Abram staring up into the sky at the stars that God's directed his attention to. And God's God's challenged him to consider the fact that they are innumerable. And as that truth sinks in, God breaks the silence by saying, so shall your offspring be. And whether he says it in his heart or he says it aloud, Abram's response is amen. So be it. It's an expression of trust, of belief, an expression of faith. And it is this faith that is counted to him as righteousness. It's key here that it says counted to him. Uh, You've probably heard it before, and it's clearer in the Greek, but it's here in the Hebrew as well. That counted is credited. That is, it is not his native righteousness, but righteousness is given to him from outside. It is what theologians have come to refer to as an alien righteousness. It is not his natively, but is given to him by God, not because of his works, but because he has believed God's promises. Salvation is by faith alone. Uh, We see later in the text that that salvation is not only not earned by keeping the law, it cannot be kept by keeping the law. Paul, of course, hammers this in Galatians 3, and it's, it's no surprise then that in Galatians 3, Paul multiple times refers to this passage here as he tries to explain to the Galatians that you can not only not earn your salvation, you cannot hold on to your salvation by keeping the law. Look at what happens here later in our text. And if you're, you're not familiar, if you've not heard it before, what's happening here as, as Abram cuts these animals in half and lays them across from one another, uh, and God goes through these pieces by himself. This is a, a known ceremony from the ancient Near East. This is the way that a, a covenant was formally established. And the effect of the animals being cut and laid across from one another is a threat. Two parties would come together and make promises to one another. And then those two parties would together walk through the pieces. Uh, And the the effect of walking through the pieces together was to say, if I do not keep the promises I have made, let what has happened to these animals happen to me. 
I invoke a death penalty on myself if I will not keep this covenant. And so it's, it's shocking when we come to verse 17. And Abram passed out. God goes through the pieces himself. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Two parties, both God. God secures this covenant himself with no help from Abram. There is no threat that hangs over Abram in this covenant. It is secured by God and God alone. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Paul will say in Romans 8. Salvation is by faith alone. We we secure salvation by faith and not works. And we retain that salvation by faith because God has secured that salvation Himself alone for us. And this is good news. And He does it, not in the context of a systematic theology textbook, but in the context of an unfolding narrative of relationship between God and Abram and his offspring. Fellowship with God is the key. Righteousness, as a matter of fact, though it is a glorious gift from God, righteousness is a means to an end, which is fellowship with God restored forever. God is our maker and the source of our life. And we come back into the source of life when we believe God and His promises. Second, this morning, God is exceedingly patient with His people. Notice that twice Abram questions God in the face of God's promises, and God twice answers Abram with kindness and patience. In the same way that we, we understand in worship that we, uh, we stand before you, Nathan and I, and we preach the Word of God, but having preached the Word of God, we then come down to the table, and you are, are given a, a, a sensible sign, bread and wine that you can taste and touch and see and feel and smell. In the same way, God says to Abram, here is the promise, and now here is the sign. Knowing Abram's weakness, he meets him in that weakness. God is exceedingly patient with his people, not only with Abram, but the Amorites. Look at what he says here, telling Abram, it's going to be 400 years. Your your people are going to, to sojourn in a land that is not theirs. But they'll come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. There's a couple of things we don't want to miss there. First of all, and we don't have time to go into it this morning in any depth, but when we come later in the story of Israel and the Exodus, and particularly the conquest under Joshua, and we see God sending the people of Israel into the promised land with the command to kill everyone and every living thing. It is in the context of this verse right here. They come in as the judgment of God against sin. But look at the patience toward the Amorites. And the Amorites are just not, they're not just another ite in the Old Testament narrative. The Amorites, in the context of all of the, the narrative that we have, the Amorites are among the most wicked of the people. 400 years 
God is patient with them. And these are not His people. They are not the ones to whom He has made promises. They are not the ones with whom He is in covenant. 400 years of patience towards them. Listen, how much more will He be patient towards His children? What an encouragement to us to see that this is how God is patient towards His enemies. And we, having been enemies, are now His children. How much more patient will He be toward us? Tremendous patience. Abram answers God's promises with questions. Questions that that border on being accusations. You you say my reward will be very great, but I don't even have a child. When I die, the effect of of what Abram says there in those opening verses is to, to, to insinuate that when I die, it will be as though I never lived. What is the point of your promises? My entire household will go to one of the the servants living in the house. I've got a distant relative in Damascus who will inherit whatever is left when I'm gone. What will you give me? Rather than rebuking Abram, God says, no, I promised you and I will keep my promise your very own child will be your heir. And then he takes him outside and shows him the stars, and Abram believes. We get this, verse 7. The same language used in Exodus 20, uh, only this is of Abram and Ur. I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And at this point, you would expect Abram to express his belief again, and instead he goes, what are you going to give me to hold on to until that happens? What assurance can I have that you will keep this promise? And look at what God does. He does something here that I think is easily overlooked. He he tells Abram precisely what he's going to do and when he's going to do it. Again, a gracious, merciful, patient act towards Abram. Consider Abram here for the rest of his life knows why the promises aren't being fulfilled entirely in his lifetime. He knows that they won't be. He knows why they won't be. What a grace of God that he would come to Abram and say to him, in your Your patience, Abram, as you wait for the fulfillment of the promises, know this. It's going to be 400 years before your people come back and finally inherit the land. God is exceedingly patient with His people. And we see this in Abram's wrestling with God. The psalmist does the same thing. The psalmist will cry out to God and say, How long? And why do you allow my enemies to do these things to me? It's okay to wrestle with God. We see in his wrestling, respect. Abram still refers to him as Lord God. Lord God, what will you give me, he says. And so we wrestle respectfully. It's okay to wrestle with God. And often we, in our weakest moments of faith, 
recognize that they come after our greatest victories and triumphs. This is one of the great insights of the, the Puritans. It seems counterintuitive, doesn't it, that, that in our, perhaps in our, our greatest moments of, of faith, perhaps in those, those moments where we've accomplished the most in obedience to God, we, we immediately turn and experience some of the most difficult moments of faith. Abram conquered kings and kingdoms and was blessed by God's priest, Melchizedek. He refused to be made wealthy and therefore secure by the world and instead openly relied upon God. But now, immediately following, he has doubts. And God is patient with him. It's okay to have doubts. It's okay to wrestle. It's okay to cry out to God and ask Him why. I, I have known those in the church who have walked away, whether for good or for a season, and they've said, I cried out to God and He did not answer me. God is, is patient with us, and in His own time, He keeps His promises to us. And we ought to be patient with Him as we await answer to prayer. Minutes, hours, and days are not the time frame in which God ordinarily works. Years, even centuries, are more appropriate. The 400 years spoken of here is actually, it's 400 years until the, the temporal fulfillment, the partial fulfillment, the sort of illustration of fulfillment, because when the people finally come back 400 years later and under Joshua conquered the promised land and inhabit the promised land, that's not the fulfillment of the promise. It's a kind of fulfillment, but the author of Hebrews tells us Abraham was looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. And that is a promise that remains to be fulfilled finally. The new heavens and the new earth are still future for us. We still are waiting as Abram waited, as his people, his offspring waited. We are still waiting for the final fulfillment of that promise. God is patient with us as we wait and we are impatient and we ask him how long and we ask him why. Listen, this is normal in the Christian life. If that's where you're at right now, or if that's where you find yourself in the near future, this is not an aberration. This is not something broken. This is the Christian life. It is the people of God waiting and calling out how long the psalmist does it. Remember, the saints who are under the altar in Revelation do it. They cry out, how long? And the Lord is gracious there too. He says, just a little while longer. He doesn't turn and say to them, how dare you ask me that question? Have I not always proven myself to be faithful? What are you thinking? He says, it's coming. Just a little bit longer. Just be a little more patient. God is incredibly, exceedingly, infinitely patient with us as people. Finally, this morning, God's promises never fail. 
If God is patient not to destroy the Amorites, this same patience also applies to fulfilling His promises. There is a direct relationship here. If it's 400 years before the judgment will fall on the Amorites, it is also 400 years before this particular promise will be fulfilled. And a patience is required. Abram will not inherit the land himself in his lifetime. In fact, it will be descendants 400 years later, a long 400 years, and suffering between the vision and the fulfillment of God's promise illustrates that we enter glory via suffering. It is not only a period that requires patience, a period in which the people of Israel were, were by the time Moses comes along, they, 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 had, they were convinced that God had abandoned them. It's not only 400 years of patience, it's 400 years of suffering in patience. We enter the kingdom via suffering. Again, it's tempting to give God a few minutes or a few days to answer prayer, to show up in a way that we recognize and accept as sufficient. And if He does not, we're ready to doubt Him, even accuse Him, We become impatient with our patient God and make demands of Him not only to act, but to act now. There's a temptation to to say to ourselves, will He even keep His promises? Is Christ ever coming back? It's been a long time, hasn't it? 2,000 years since He was last seen on the earth. God is faithful always to keep His promises perfectly. God's faithfulness is not measured in minutes, but in eternity. God will always do precisely what He says He will do precisely when He says He will do it. And always at the, at the perfect time. This is the God that we worship and serve. This is the God whose promises we are believing. And even if those promises have not yet been completely fulfilled, we wait patiently even as we suffer. We call out to God in the midst of our suffering. And what we hear from God as we call out is fear not. I am your shield. Christ is our refuge as we wait. We, we get this little insight uh, in Genesis 15 here. It's a strange detail. We, as a staff, we sat around thinking about it this week. Verse 11, he's cut the, the animals up uh, and, and set them apart to, so that there's a, a path between them. It says in verse 11, And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. This is Christ who's cut for us. Christ who, because we have broken the covenant, comes and secures that covenant for us by giving His life, by suffering the covenant curse on our behalf. And Christ, and by extension, His people, are are constantly under attack. There's some thought here that the reference to bird of prey might even be a particular reference to Egypt, which is who will uh, attack God's people in the near future to this text. 
Abram drives them away. God is our refuge, our defender. He keeps all of His promises perfectly. Not only will they be perfectly fulfilled, but He is our refuge in the meantime and one to whom we can call out in prayer. God gives Abram this this final note in verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. God has secured these promises by His own word, and then come Himself to suffer the covenant curse to secure the promises for us eternally. So that once again, Paul can say, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Listen, we are saved by faith and not by works. And the salvation that is ours by faith, the righteousness that is ours by faith, is a righteousness secured by Christ who came and lived a perfect life. And that righteousness is the righteousness credited to us. You you might think that what God does in salvation is He comes to a sinner and He declares a sinner righteous because He would rather not consider him a sinner. He, He just pretends. There's a sort of fiction to the whole thing. He just says, you're not a sinner anymore. I don't consider you a sinner But if we are to borrow from the the accounting imagery that we have, when God deposits that righteousness into your account, when He credits you with righteousness, God has derived that righteousness from somewhere, and it is the person and work of Jesus Christ. That righteousness, His merit... He is the one who has earned, and that then is given to us freely. It becomes ours by faith. This is the God that we serve, and He is a patient God with those who are His children. And a God who calls us to patience in the midst of suffering as we wait for Him to keep all of His promises perfectly and forever. This is the God we serve, and this is the salvation that is ours, and He has given it to us by faith and not based on works. We're going to hang on to it by faith as well. It's been secured by Him, and as Paul says at the end of Romans 8, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray.